you know, we were like, well, we don't believe in anything. So we're going to, this is the music of nothing. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we drew the map. We're on. We're talking origins. So I grew up in St Helens. It's halfway between Liverpool and Manchester, in the northwest of England. No bands came from outside of my town to play my town. I spoke to a kindred spirit last night. Yeah. When he thinks back to his little town in mm. in England, that he had, he was basically that. He had to escape. There was nothing happening. Right. I likened it to when the fair or the circus came to town. I yeah. wanted I wanted I was inspired. That's where I wanted to go. Yeah. <laughs> um and it would have been maybe eight, nine, ten, somewhere around there, where I I'm getting to the fairground, we're probably going on our own few friends. There's candy floss, toffee apples, the smells, and then the sounds. It's the sounds of these guys, these like guys with earrings, uh, you know, they're risque in, back in that, that time, with leathers on. They had longish hair, it was greased back. They were, they, they were kind of what we called rockers, and they were slamming the sides of these fairground rides. These carriages with screaming girls in them. And they're saying, the louder you scream, the faster we go. And, and as it went dark and the lights took over, this was it. The dream of that, the noise and the intense atmosphere of it all. Yeah, so I, I grew up in a, a basically what was a, a suburb of London, South London. And it's a commuter town so basically everybody uh, lives there sleeps there and then gets up in the morning and gets on the train to go to work in london so the town in the middle of the day is completely empty there's nobody around and it's it's a very sort of desolate place but it's it's basically suburbs of of endless boring nothingness and there's very little interest there so every year when i was a kid you know, my whole world was was bordered by about three items: school, church, and and the Cub Scouts. And you know, there wasn't anything outside of that. So every year, the fair would come to town, and I would go and watch. And it, for me, it was always the guys on the bumper cars on the Dodgems because they would be riding around, and they would always be these sort of. Uh, old teddy boys these old uh, rockabilly guys with greased back hair and they'd be leaping from from car to car and i thought well they're very cool but they were also a little terrifying as well because you you knew they had some kind of bicycle chain in their back pocket that they could whip out at a moment's notice and decapitate you you know and also all the girls that i would see during the year pass me by on the other side of the street and give me nary a look were sort of entranced by these uh these rogues and ruffians, you know, and uh, it was very much like a Stephen King novel, really. So I think that was my first sort of foray into the fact that like, there was something brighter and bigger and a bit more exciting. I mean, you know, on reflection, 
the uh, the carney's life is not that exciting or or great but you know we, what do you know what do you we, know at, at 12 years old you don't you know? we didn't know no that's probably what happened you know with the idea of music as well because from there on and like uh, like budgie I, my town didn't really have any bands come and visit i think pink floyd came to play at the bowling alley and that was probably about the biggest gig that had ever happened in crawley still still right and <laughs> you know it became uh, obvious that we had to go a little further afield so as soon as one of us got a, a, a driving license we were like that was our liberation let's get a car let's drive up to london which was really you know like 20 miles away but that might as well have been the moon to us you know at, at 15 16 and uh that's where we started to see bands we started to go to these little clubs and all the stuff i've been listening to on records which was a mystery to me. I could see it firsthand there, close up. I was always at the front of the stage or underneath the stage a lot of the time, looking, analyzing every. I was one of those guys, you know, sitting there that, you know, many years later when you're playing yourself, you you feel a little sort of self-conscious because you see there's, there's always somebody looking at exactly what you're doing and trying to figure it out. Well, that was me. I was there trying to figure out what you're doing. So for me, it was more like that was my my true education you know uh, our life seemed pretty prescribed before we even got to being adults you know there was very little in the way of infrastructure or excess of anything left after the second world war in england the 50s in england were were uh, very grim and the 60s weren't much better the 60s had that little bit of you know flower power and things mm. but come the 70s the 70s was a lot of uh almost like depression era you know there was a lot of strikes there was a lot of political upheaval so for us as as teenagers it didn't seem like there was a tremendous amount we could do to get to 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 escape I don't know that I was completely aware as a small boy of how grim the reality was, but there, there wasn't much joy going around. <laughs> <laughs> the only clue I had to what was going on out in a bigger world to do with you know, escaping was the Partridge family. <laughs> yes. I was really jealous of the Partridge family. They had the, a great bus. I thought we should get a bus like that. We need a bus. Right. And uh, But they, you know, it was kind of a bit too convenient. They're all in the same family. But, you know, my, my thing, around about 1972, I think, the, the bottom dropped out of our world. My mum passed away suddenly. And I think then it was like, the, the the hold was off, you know. There was the, the bar was gone. There was no restriction in a way. I didn't become a wild kid, mm. but with the if you like the blessing of my dad, I, I joined up with this, some of the guys. Knocked on my door and said, "You can play drums." I ended up, you know, playing the what what the circuit that existed was the cabaret circuit. Right. It was the working men's clubs, the labour club, the conservative club. And I was learning the things about stage, learning about how bad dressing rooms can be, uh, learning about what it's like to stay out late, 
I'm also earning a bit of money, incredibly. Right. right. I, so I had enough money then to start maybe piecing together a kit, buying a sound system, like a hi-fi system. And, um, you know, looking really bleary-eyed on Monday morning when I turned in for school. But it was like a secret life, you know. Yeah. The, the secret life was happening. And then quite as suddenly as it started, it stopped. And so then I had to figure out another way of escaping. Well, I had a similar experience. I think when The Clash's first album came out, and I heard the song Garage Land, you know, we're a garage band, we come from garage land. I knew that. I knew, I knew, I absolutely lived that because, like, I only want to stay in the garage all night. That's what we would do, except we would stay in Robert's house all night. And... The same thing, it's that first Clash album. Yeah. And it was Jenny Jones for me. Right. I was just, that, that beat got me. Yeah. That was really, you know, it, it was like, I suppose it would be like when you were a little kid and you built a clubhouse out in the woods. Our clubhouse was uh, the Smiths, you know, remodeled uh, back room, and and we would just sit in there and play and plot. So by the time we actually came to be able to play pubs, we'd had like three years in in the woodshed, you know, perfecting our, our stuff. So we knew kind of how to play by the time we got out. Not not well, but we knew enough to play the things that we wanted to play, mm. and. Uh, the way we learnt it was really by uh, a, a mixture of desperation and osmosis, you know. We knew we didn't want to stay in, in Crawley for the rest of our lives because, you know, most of the inhabitants of Crawley were were not really that friendly towards us and, and we didn't really have anything in common with them. Mm. After a while, when I was a kid, I gravitated towards the sort of people that showed that that difference. You know, they're you know the outsiders of the town, the geeks of the town, the people that you know other people would say, "Oh, they're, they're okay, but they're weird." You know, if you were weird, you were on my list to be my friend. You know, that was that was my criteria. Like, you know, if you're weird and not everybody likes you, I'm probably going to want to try and be your friend i i, I like that lol I, I i used to i used, I used to imitate the, the weirdos in town if there was somebody walking down the street with long hair and they had a strange yeah. walk yeah. i would adopt that walk i would also yeah. try and get the long coat they were wearing as well or the strange luminous jacket but i i i aped people i thought might be a clue you know so right it's my, the clue yeah. My my, t- my ticket out. I went after leaving school. I went to the local art college, which was a two year kind of stopover, you know, to learn some skills like photography and screen printing and things like this. Um, all the things that I never got to use once I got to the real art college because it, that was entirely different. But I did. It was my ticket out. Um, I didn't go very far. I just got on the, on the uh, train to Liverpool, and then once I'd left home, I stayed in Liverpool. But the reason I chose Liverpool above other colleges I was applying to was because I saw a drum kit in the basement of the college, and it belonged to <laughs> Timothy Whitaker, and he was the drummer with <laughs> Deaf School. Oh, and I thought I've got my eye on that drum seat. I 
I hadn't really played with the band. I had all that stuff with the cabaret thing finished, all yeah. playing drums as anything. That had all really, that dream had kind of dissipated. But when I got to Liverpool, I'd started to meet people. And what was really frustrating was other bands started in the college. It was a band called Albert Dock, who went mm -hmm. on to become Yachts, who got a deal with Radar. Yeah. Like, you know, the early... Uh, offshoot from stiff records really right. and um everything was happening so quickly and you you really thought we're getting left behind straight away <laughs> it was like <laughs> um and then the knock on the door like you play drums i said no i don't he said mm. yes you do you're playing drums with us <laughs> i knew they were two guys locked on my door in liverpool and um they thought they were going to be opening that night at eric's club in oh, liverpool yeah. For Susie and the Banshees. Mm. Yeah, we didn't get the gig. <laughs> wow. But it was really Eric's Club in Liverpool was the key because that's when I met other kindred spirits who were kind of drifted into Matthew Street, drawn there by early gigs at Eric's. The Clash came down there, the Sex Pistols, uh, the Runaways, Blondie, Talking Heads, Devo. They were all there at Eric's. And uh, when they were not playing, when the gigs weren't on, that was our rehearsal space. So we started. And the thing I brought with me from the cabaret circuit was I knew how to rehearse. I knew how to get in a room. And I knew that we had to get something by the end of the day that sounded like a song. We need to, we need to be achieving something. I didn't, I didn't know what I wanted to do so much as I knew what I didn't want to do. And that was really, you know, evident in the way that the cure approached the stuff at the very beginning because most bands you know they pick a song or an artist or music that they like and their first forays into writing their own music are copies of of you know the artists they like or the songs they like and we decided more than that there was things that we didn't like like you know very long guitar solos and very flamboyant drumming and things like that that we decided we don't like those things so we we kind of based ourselves around that it was like a, a very uh extreme form of nihilism you know we were like well we don't believe in anything so we're gonna this is the music of nothing and once we started to connect ourselves to it with what we were doing that's what made it more more vital and more relevant once we started thinking about well what are the feelings we get from living in this place you know we were always aware that we were right next to this huge metropolis that where everything special going on was supposed to go on and we weren't part of it and so we decided well if we're not invited to the party we don't we'll make our own party because we don't care you know and that was probably the thing that saved us in a way because we didn't want to uh for, we weren't chasing bandwagons because you're right at the time uh everything happened very very fast like from you know every week on the melody maker there was something different that had happened something something body different that had come up and you could end up chasing your own tail if you weren't careful you know like oh well we have to sound like this to make an impression to be able to get to here and by the time you'd done that 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 train had gone that ship had sailed
curious questions time. From various other curious creatures around the globe. Mm, yes. This is from Alistair Dickinson. Dixon, sorry. Is that Dixon. Alistair with a D? Alistair with a D, yes. So is he's probably Scottish then, right? Yes. Ah, I see. I've met one Alistair with a D. Alistair, and I thought yeah, he I was, it, I thought he was, I thought it was like, you know, oh, he's, he's just making an that affectation, up. an affectation. <laughs> exactly. Of yes. Yeah. yeah. There's no, no D it, in Alistair. I think it's, I think it's a Scottish spelling and you'll understand why I think that when I read the question. Oh, um, okay. Dear Loll and Budgie, I'm curious to hear your respective memories of the associates. What did you make of them as a live band, particularly Billy McKenzie's voice? And what were Mackenzie and Rankin like to hang out with? I read in Tom Doyle's book, The Glamour Chase, that many people heard Billy McKenzie's voice on record and dismissed it as studio trickery. Warmest wishes to both of you. Alistair, Alistair Dixon, Walthamstow. So he's a long way from Scotland, but, you know. Mm. Well, um, when did you first meet Mr. McKenzie? Um... Well, I'm wondering. I, I don't have a, a memory of of really meeting Billy. It's it's a strange thing. I don't I don't know if we did. Um, I felt very close to him because we we were occupying the same space for a lot of time. So the first awareness of um, of, of Billy and the Associates would be when Mike Hedges was working on their first one, two, or three right. albums. Right, right. So you were all in the same studios together. That's it. It was uh, play, right. Playground Studios. Mike Hedges was looking after, was, you know, it was his studio. He was the, the cooperator of it. Um, and when we walked in to do the first, either the Creatures EP, that, that weekend we went in to do the five track Wild Things EP. And around us were like these blackboards with titles, you know, um, glamour chase, whatever it might be. Um, um, and this was the associates, right? You know, doing three albums back to back at the same time. <laughs> I'm sure we met, and I have no specific knowledge. You know, no, no kind of. Oh yes, I remember that night. I was out with Billy and whoever might be around. Um, but I must, I do have this sort of memory of, of, of his voice, not his singing voice, but his speaking voice. So it must be there. Perhaps you can jog that memory for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, Billy, Billy was from, um, oh my goodness, Dundee. He was from Dundee. I was going yes. to say, I thought it was Dundee. He was from Dundee. And um, I think the first time I met him was because, you know, he was on the same label as us mm. on fiction. And, um, you know, Michael, who had just left The Cure after the first album, ended up playing with the associates. And, uh, you know, so we would bump into them. And, and also, we did a tour with the associates. And I have a very nice memory. There are two very nice memories of that that tour of um, going boating at midnight in, in Rome <laughs> with Billy <laughs> and uh, which was, of course, what else? Yeah. Which was kind of fun. And uh, 
strange at the same time. And, um, you know, we, we liberated a couple of those little pedal boats from the beach and uh, we went down into the sea and, and just pedaled around in the moonlight, which so it was pretty nice. Um, and then uh, the other memory is I, I went out to a nightclub one night with him in Italy and um, I was dancing with a, a young lady and I had no idea how would I, the young lady's boyfriend was sitting in the side there and he came up and started remonstrating with me in Italian and and Billy just sort of got in between the pair of us and gave him that very Scottish look. And, <laughs> uh, and the guy, so basically, he he saved me, and uh, you know the guy backed off, and everything went back to normal. So um, these are the I'll, stories I'll, I hear a lot of of Billy, where he could handle himself. Oh, totally, totally. I mean, you know, it, it, I don't think it's any uh, great revelation if I tell you if it, when when if you got to see him, like, as you would do in a dressing room, without his shirt on, um, he'd been a few rounds, let's put it that way. He, he had, you know, he had the scars to prove it. Mm. And um, so, yeah, he was, uh, but he was that, that sort of combination of a, of a great artist and also quite, quite a, a tough character, but I guess you had to be growing up in, uh, in Dundee, but uh, I miss him. I miss him to this day. And uh I always thought it was great. And the voice I can absolutely 100% tell you was all Billy because mm. Billy came along to, uh, we were working in, in Abbey Road with Mike Hedges at um, the Penthouse studio at the top. Yeah, they just put yeah. in. And um, we were recording Bits of Faith. And uh, Billy came along well, a couple of days, I think, and he was sitting at the back. And he would listen to the songs as we were doing them. And then he would sing his ideas, his parts. He thought like, hey, how about this? And he'd just sing it from the back of the room. And it's all him. There's no studio trickery. It's all Billy. Did Billy, uh, did Billy sing on any of your songs? Um, I don't think he sang. Well, he didn't sing on Faith, that's for sure. But no. um, but. Uh, I don't know. He may have done later on. I don't really. I don't really recall. I don't really recall. Um, yeah, yeah. And my my last memory of him really is they were getting ready for a big tour, and they had Martha was playing keyboards from. Uh, gosh, I'm trying to think. She was Canadian, and um, they had like a big orchestra ready to go out on the road and everything. And then they didn't do the tour, which you know. But he had big ideas, very big ideas, and uh, you know he got to see some of them mm. reenacted. But uh, not all. I'm just, yeah. We've had so many, a few talks, and some quite recently about the being ready for the wind, for the the door when it's when it's open, the door of opportunity or the window right. of opportunity. <clears throat> right. And Billy seemed to be more than equipped you know ready to, yeah for that opportunity but 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 never seemed to fully embrace it no that's right that's right i mean he he had all the qualifications to go to the toppest most of the top and most you know he could have done anything he liked and um unfortunately i think you know some of it is is that that old uh bugbear of of any artist you know fear and and you know just sort of general i always heard that billy didn't trust he didn't trust the the, the business right so would 
want to see, you know, have the actual advance. Yes, yes. Kept right. under the bed. That he loved yeah. his dogs, his whippets. Oh, absolutely. I, I can, I'll tell you a story about the whippets in a minute. Anyway, carry on. And, and, and I just like to, you know, the, 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 I always remember the track with Yellow, the Rhythm Divine. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and, and I, I don't know if, did they do that with Shirley Bassey at some point? Did she join him for that? And it was, I know he sang with Shirley Bassey at some point. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Because it was almost a song written for her, you know, did that. Yeah. But it's just, it's like from another world. I always thought this, this mm. voice from another world, it seemed to be, be that, but I loved country club with Michael's playing with that. that oh, everybody, yeah. everybody seemed yeah. to be firing on all six. Yeah, around, around those singles. Yeah. Tell us absolutely. the story about the whippets. Come on. Oh, the whippets. Well, you know, uh, Fiction had an office in central London that also doubled as, as a place for, you know, various members of various bands to crash <laughs> if they were in London. So um, I was staying there at one point and Billy turned up with his, you know, I don't know what you'd call them, a pack of do flock of dogs or whatever, you know, like 20 whippets, you know, that he'd brought down from <laughs> from 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 uh, scotland on the train you know so and um we were sitting there talking and he was saying oh, you know i've got to go out to this thing tonight and i don't think they'll let me bring the dogs so you know would you are you here tonight and i said well yeah i'm here he said do you like to you know keep an eye out for them i went yeah sure you know i probably had a couple of drinks by that time so i'd agree to anything and um so i have this memory of me in in the little bedroom at the back of fiction and i was like the the den master you know that there was 20 of these whippets <laughs> around the bed on the bed and the tiniest one slept on top of my head uh -huh. you know, like all, all night and they were they were very friendly and lovely and stuff but you know I, I wasn't going to be able to go anywhere without them. No, you know, very, no. very licky, I imagine. Very licky, yes, all night bloody long, you know. And uh, What time did Billy roll in? Well, he didn't roll in that night. He rolled in the next morning, and, and I, you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I thank you. I, I enjoyed it, but, you know, I don't really want to repeat that experience, Billy. Thank no, you. No, yeah. no. Um, you had a lovely story. Uh, was it Billy who would, uh, when he was, if you like, bringing in the musicians he would need to either fill the gaps in on the tour. Yes. He had, he had a way of checking out their credentials, how good they were, whether they fitted or not. Yes. Well, his, his, um, his yardstick for like, you know, if you were going to be in the associates and I, and I suspect a lot of, uh, young musicians had wished they'd known this beforehand because they could have, you know, they could have got in quite easily. Mm -hmm. Billy didn't care how you played. Billy didn't really care, you know, how tall or short you were. But if you were wearing the wrong shoes, according to Billy, you weren't going to play in the associates. Yeah. If you had the right shoes, you were in. I think so. I think it's a quite an accurate yardstick. Well, in general, I think it it tells people's personality. You know, I mean, one of the the first things I uh, I noticed when I I got to America is there's a, a lot of men walking around wearing suits. Not everybody, but a lot of men walking around wearing suits with very casual shoes underneath mm. them, like their, you know, gym shoes, and uh, that doesn't really go. You know, it's like brown boots with your black suit. You can't so wear it. What Billy was looking for is attention to detail. 
he was looking for attention to detail and that you were the whole package. So, you know, you might be a good piano player and the other guy's a good piano player, but if you had your attention to detail, you had a lariat tie and a nice pair of, you know, um, sort of um, cowboy boots or something polished with a little silver bit on the end, you probably got the job. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that's true because I, I was on an, an edition of Nevermind the Buzzcocks, the, uh, the comedy uh, kind of celebrity pop quiz in, in Britain. Yeah. Uh, and um, they have a section uh, where they have four people, like three are stooges and one is the actual person. Right. But it's a long time after and they're dressed differently. So they say it's like a, one of the guys would be in mud. Oh, sweet, right. sweet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and they're all dressed. And, and you're thinking, and, and I looked at their shoes, and what, you know, three of them were wearing sandals. And I thought, yeah. there's no way the guy who was in sweet or mud or whoever was the, right. pop, glam, the glam pop star. And of right. course, one of them had really nice shoes. I had no idea which face was correct, but I knew which shoes were right. Yeah, and I think that's a very good benchmark. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's you know, if you if you don't look like who you are all the way down, you're not really taking it seriously. Um, Robert used to have uh, have a have a theory that there were a lot of guys in bands that never got anywhere or or he didn't like or whatever that they they only had a mirror that went down to their waist because mm -hmm. you know below the waist and like on their shoes and that they 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 just didn't bother to get dressed you know and that's was his theory about it all of course yes we never had a mirror <laughs> that way um on the let's see the creatures did a, a track and susie wrote a lyric for for billy when she oh, heard right. when she heard that billy passed yeah um it's called say and um it was interesting because we, I don't think she'd written anything so directly related to a, a, a you know, an incident, a, a kind right. of a, a, an instant reaction to it, it, to another person that way. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, he's, um, you know, the music still stands the test of time. Uh, and, that, uh, yes, yes. Well, I just like to say, I, I think Billy's, Billy, I hope, and I do believe, is, is with us in spirit. Certainly, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He, he's sorely missed, and I wish he was here to tell some of the stories himself, because he was a bit of a raconteur himself. A raconteur. Yeah. What a what a voice. What yeah. a voice. What a laugh. What a wonderful oh, yeah. laughing voice. Yeah, it's very funny. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Bol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer Dan Didier. Executive producer Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Spare. Social media, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. I love saying www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. <laughs> and you can reach us on Instagram. Facebook <laughs> at Curious Creatures Official. Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram and at doubleelvisfm on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2021.